For those of you who don't know me, Charlie said I didn't need to be introduced. I told him new faces in here, but so I will introduce myself. My name is Kelly Darty. I'm here with my wife, Arlene. We were, along with our daughters, were members here at Bernie Bible for 20 years and on staff for 23 at His Hill, and uh, every once in a while I get to come back, and uh, we look forward to that time. It's, it's always good to be at Bernie Bible. We miss you very much. Um, real quick, you know, when we were singing, just listening to you sing, sometimes I had to be quiet and just listen. Uh, years ago, I was in my office at His Hill, and one of the students came to my office and wanted to talk to me. He was interested in going into the music ministry, and he said, Kelly, I need you to explain something to me. I go to Bernie Bible, and they actually sing. How do you do that? And, uh, you know, we talked about that for a while, um, and it was just really encouraging to hear you sing. And Todd, I appreciate the music that you picked out. It was uh, actually the Lord was using it to speak to my heart for what I'm about to say. And uh, I'm encouraged by it because, you know, I go to a lot of other churches and uh, really that corporate worship time has become more of a spectator time than a participant time. And so I am encouraged and I want to encourage you with that as well. Thank you for singing. Let's turn to the book of John, chapter 14. I was going to preach something completely different. Arlene asked me yesterday, how's it going? I said, not good. Um, And I didn't know why. But as the evening went on and the Lord started to show me some things, I began to understand why. Because there's some things that I'm going through right now that the Lord needed to work in my heart, and you just have to... You just have to bear with that. Um, But a familiar passage to us. And you know what? You're always tempted not to preach from familiar passages. You know, you want to come up with something else and and give something new. And oh my goodness. Hi. The Michaels are here. Oh my goodness. I haven't seen you in years. All right. Sorry. Um, Anyway, we're going to look in chapter 14. And I want to look at the first seven verses. Jesus is speaking to his disciples in the upper room just before he's arrested. And so there's some some important things he wants to convey to them before this happens. Knowing that it's about to get rough, he says this, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. And you know the, and you know the way where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning and for what you are about to do, as only you can do. And so, Lord, we ask for your wisdom not to come into this time with any preconceived ideas or expectations, but to allow you to work in our hearts what it is you would work. 
We ask for your wisdom to listen to you. We ask for your wisdom to respond to you, that you would be glorified. Thank you, Father, for not being silent. Thank you for speaking. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I've titled this message, God is Very Narrow-Minded. And I agree with those who say that we should not put God in a box, so long as it is not the box God has put himself in. What box would that be? Let's look at a couple of passages real quick. Go over to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. The Lord's used it greatly in my life. In verse 9, just looking at one verse there, and then we're going to jump over to Hebrews chapter 1, but in Colossians 2 and verse 9, it says this, In Him, now Him is Christ, so in Him, Christ, all the fullness of deity, of course, deity being God. So in Christ, all the fullness of God dwells in bodily form. I want us to think about this, the box that God puts Himself into. We see in Christ all of God. God shows himself through his son, Jesus Christ. To what extent does he do this? Let's go to Hebrews chapter 1. In Hebrews chapter 1, in the first four verses, God reveals himself. He shows himself full. In verses 1 to 4, beginning in verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers, In the prophets, in many portions, and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, and whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. See, it is through Jesus that he shows himself. In verse 3, and he is, Christ is the radiance of his, God's glory, and the exact representation of God's nature. And he upholds all things by the word of God's power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Often, uh, when I was on staff at his hill, I would hear students say their reason for coming to his hill was to get to know God better, to get to know God more. And my encouragement to them and to you as well as to me is that if we're going to know God better, if we're going to know God more, then we have got to know Jesus. If we do not know Jesus, we will not know God because it is through Jesus that God makes himself known. And so it is in Christ. This is the box that God has placed himself in to fully reveal himself. I once had a student come to me after class, or in between classes, and uh, other students were up asking questions, and this one student waited her turn. She was one of our married students. She and her husband sat together on the side. She came up and patiently waited till all the other students had asked their questions. When they were finished, Their questions, I turned to her, and she said this, you say so many things that are wrong. And all the other students standing there got their attention, and they looked at her, and I looked at her, and I said, well, what have I said? And she said, you're you're telling me that I cannot do anything. 
And I said, oh, that. <laughs> this was early in the year, and then I told her, this is going to be a very long year for you. <laughs> she said this, my Bible says I can. And I said, it sure does. Now read the rest of it. There are passages, like in Colossians, where Paul says, I strive and I labor. And she says, see? And I said, yes, now read the rest. And he goes on and says, according to his power, which mightily works within me. She's saying I was very narrow-minded. And I hope that's true. I hope it's true that I am learning each day to become more and more narrow-minded. Because it's in this narrow-mindedness that I personally have seen the lost saved. It's in this narrow-mindedness that I have seen the addicted set free. It is in this narrow-mindedness that I have seen the tired rejuvenated. I've seen the homosexual given hope to live right according to his design in this narrow-mindedness. And all of this enabled, they were enabled to live in their trial without a troubled heart. The disciples probably felt alone and scared, confused, because this was not their expectation. What is about to happen was not their plan. And Jesus knew this. So what does he tell them? In verse 1, he says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Are you troubled? Having placed your faith in Christ, are you troubled? Are you troubled at school? Are you troubled in your work? Are you troubled in your unemployment? Are you troubled in your marriage? Are you troubled in your singleness? If your parents, are you troubled with your children? The only way we find from Scripture, the only way to live free of trouble is to be as narrow-minded as God. And so we look at this passage and we find that Christ was very narrow-minded. We find that he was very narrow-minded in verse 6 in that he says, I am the way, not a way. I am the the way. Warren Wiersbe once said that Jesus does not simply teach the way or point the way. He is the way. I wonder how many times we miss that. How many times we hear it but miss it. How many times we say it but don't hear it. That Jesus literally is the way. Peter explains that in John chapter 6, verses 68 and 69, when there were a lot of people leaving, abandoning Jesus. He looks at his disciples and he says, he asks them, are you going to? Peter responds by saying this in verse 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? 
how many times do we disagree with that statement? As believers who attend church, who read the Bible, who study, some of us teach, some of us preach, some of us witness, how many times as we live throughout each day do we disagree with that statement? Lord, to whom shall we go? When we will run to what? We'll run to our hobbies. That's where we'll go. We'll run to our work. That's where we go. We run to our friends. We run to our, whatever it is that's enticing us. Whatever it is that brings comfort, even if it was for a little while, to whom shall we go? But Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. He is the way. When I was a teenager, um, we had potluck every Wednesday night at church. And the ladies would rotate as far as what they were going to prepare. And uh, it was my mom's turn to make the salad. We were running late. She asked me. I had just, my license were fairly new, so I was looking for any reason to use them. And she, uh, she asked me if I would run to the grocery store, pick up just a few things quickly so she could prepare it before, uh, before we left. It was real easy. She told me, I only need three things, Kelly. I just need lettuce, cucumbers, and tomatoes. That's it. And I said, I can do it, Mom. I jumped in the truck and I took off. I got to the grocery store as quick as I could. I mean that, as quick as I could. I ran into the store to the produce section, and I very quickly grabbed the lettuce, the cucumbers, the tomatoes, and I ran to the cashier, paid for it, jumped in the truck, and quickly got home. Ran inside, proudly handed the bag to my mom, how I had helped her out. And she opened up the bag, she looked inside, she looked back at me, and her face drops, and she says, Kelly, what have you done? What do you mean, Mom? What did I ask you to get? Well, lettuce, cucumbers, and tomatoes. My mom reached into the bag. Instead of lettuce, she pulled out cabbage. <laughs> instead of a cucumber, she pulled out zucchini. <laughs> and instead of tomatoes, <laughs> she pulled out a bag of apples. <laughs> they were in a bag, okay? I didn't pay much attention to it. So she went on to make the most interesting salad that I've ever had. <laughs> My point in the story is this. I was so busy being busy for my mom that I didn't realize that I was not busy my mom's way. How often are we like that? We, there are things that come into our life and we are so troubled by it that we get so active, so busy and trying to correct it, so busy and trying to make it the way we think it's supposed to be. We're so busy that we don't realize we are not busy His way. When I was nine years old, I came to know Jesus. I entrusted my life to Him, and I spent the next 13 years knocking myself out trying to please Him, 
trying to be like him. Reading my Bible. Attending church. Attending camp. Attending Bible school. Going to Bible college. And at the end of it, finding that the Christianity that I had been so involved in was useless. So I quit. And I told God I quit. I don't want it. I've tried Christianity and it doesn't work. My family was with me at the time, so, and they were asking what was going on. I, I wasn't about to explain it all to them because I knew it was going to upset them. So I, you know, I did tell God, I'll keep going to church, and I'll keep my salvation because heaven sounds better than hell. But as far as this living like you stuff, I'm done. And it was as though, no, it, it was. The Lord just simply said to me, good. Been waiting for this. Been waiting for you to come to the point where you are ready to quit what you have created and named Christianity, where you are ready to quit worshiping your idol and be ready, your heart be ready for me. Do we understand that he is the way? We find in this passage that Jesus is very narrow-minded when he says, I am the truth. Truth really is an absolute. Though so often, and it's, it's really breaking my heart that, you know, for, for, for years we've seen the world try to present truth as being relative. But what I've begun to, to observe myself in the last 15 years that within the church, now truth is becoming relative to us. How can that be? Listen to the words of Major Ian Thomas. He said, once said this, Truth is as timeless as God himself. It never changes. It may be forgotten, neglected, perverted, opposed, rejected, counterfeited, or displaced but it never changes. It doesn't matter what we think. Truth is truth. It doesn't change what is true. It is not an emphasis. It's not a concept, a party line, nor merely an option. It is an imperative. Truth does not change. Look at the words of Hebrews chapter 8. When we put the statement that Jesus makes when he says, I am the truth, and then we go to Hebrews, I'm sorry, chapter 13. In Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 8, it's just a small verse, but so often it's good for our, our eyes to hear what's being said, isn't it? In verse 8, it says this, Jesus Christ, okay, now remember, we just saw this, that Jesus says, I am the truth. Now put that with this verse. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So whatever we find to be true of Jesus yesterday is true of him today and will be true of him tomorrow. The one who says he is the truth never changes. The one who says he is the truth 
never changes. Therefore, he is an absolute. Truth is an absolute. Two men were in an argument. They couldn't settle the argument, so they went before a judge with it. The plaintiff gives his case first, and he was very eloquent, very persuasive, and at the end of his argument, the judge says, that's right, you're right. The defendant stands up and says, wait a minute, I haven't had a chance to present my side of it. So he goes on and he presents his side of the argument, again, very persuasive, very elegant. The judge says, that's right, that's right, you're right. So finally, the clerk of court stands up and says, Your Honor, they can't both be right. And the judge looks at him and says, You're right. <laughs> but that's how we are so often, isn't it? I mean, even born-again evangelical believers are not necessarily firmly grounded in the truth. The survey was done. Asking different questions. This survey was presented to born-again believers. This was one of the statements made. The statement was, The devil or Satan is not a living being, but is a symbol of evil. 48% of the born-again believers asked this question agreed to it. 48% either agreed or said they didn't know. The same survey, another statement was made. Christians, Jews, Muslims, Buddhists, and others all pray to the same God even though they use different names for that God. And of these born-again believers who were asked, or who were given this statement, it was found that 60% agreed with this. That Christians, Jews, Muslims, Buddhists, and others all pray to the same God, even though they use different names for that God. And I know, I have friends who actually teach this. They actually teach, they actually teach others that, though it is true that Christ alone saves... It is not necessary to place faith in Christ in order to be saved by Christ. If that is true, then what was Jesus talking about in John 3.16, the verse we've all learned growing up in church? Whoever believed, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. What about when Peter says, in the verse that we were just talking about from John chapter 6, in verse 68, when Jesus asks, are you going to leave too? And Peter responds with this, where else? Can we go? You alone have words of life. And then what about what we see right here in this passage, verse 6 of chapter 14? I am 
the truth. But so often, we will run other places and embrace the lie. We'll give it, we'll give it certain names. You know, we'll give it religious. You know, we'll use our, our terminology from the church. But it doesn't change the fact that he alone is truth. So we find in this passage that Jesus is very narrow-minded. He is the way. He is the truth. And then we find that he says he is, or he says, I am the life. John Hunter once said that some of God's people do not live. They just exist. From one crisis to the next. Some of God's people do not live. They just exist. From one crisis to the next. Are you living or existing? Let's walk through scripture real quick. Indulge me, please. Make me feel good. I'm the guest. Let's start with Genesis chapter 2. This will be a little bit of a review for the His Hill students. We just went through some of this a few weeks ago. We know in Genesis chapter 1, in verses 26 and 27, that man was created in the image of God. So the whole purpose of our existence is to show the image of God. What is true of God should be true, should be seen as true in us. How we respond to the person that cuts us off at the traffic light. The image of God should be seen in that response. Can't tell you how many times Arlene looks at me and just says, Can't Jesus drive the car? And I go, yes. <laughs> so we were creating the image of God, but how is that possible? How are we going to be able to show the image of God? I think everybody in here, no, I'm sorry, I know everybody in here can give testimony to the fact that we don't always do so well with that. So how is it possible? If you're anything like me, you have tried and tried and tried and tried, and it doesn't work. So how is it possible? In Genesis 2, verse 7, it says this, Then the Lord God formed man of dust of the ground. That should be the beginning of a motivational speech. You know, you're really trying to build somebody up, tell them they're nothing but a dirt bag. So he takes the dirt of the ground and then he does what? He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. Now in the context here, because of what we know went on in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, we know that what is going on in order to live out the image of God, it takes God's very life to live out of the dirt. So if the image of God is going to be seen, it's because the image of God is showing himself. Not because you and I are imitating it. That would not be the image of God. That would be our attempt to look like God. But, like you've heard me say before, 
It takes God and the man for man to be the man that God made man to be. Right? Yes. You see, it takes God in the man for man to be the man that God made man to be because man without God ain't man. But just an empty shell of potential. So you see, his life is necessary for his life. Now what happens, we know in Genesis chapter 3 that all falls apart, right? Now I'm going to ask you to turn somewhere and you're going to think, why would I have you turn there? Because it's good for our eyes to hear. Turn to John 3.16. For so many of us, it may be the cleanest page in our Bible because we know it so well, we don't have a need to turn to it. But look at these familiar words with me. Now, we're talking about Christ being the life, and we see that it took God's breath in man for man to live. We know that man dies in Genesis chapter 3. But look at what Jesus says in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal, what's the word? Life. It's almost like one person wrote the Bible, isn't it? And God does not change. Because truth does not change. He created us to live life. And so man who has fallen is once again given the privilege of living life. How? Through the one who is life. Whoever believes in me. The word believe means to entrust. Whoever entrusts himself to me will not perish but have eternal life. And so for the one who believes and has that life, what will this look like? Turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 21. More familiar words for our eyes to hear. In verse 21, for to me, Paul says from prison, for to me to live... Jesus says, I am the life. For me to live is Christ. Not to be like him, not to try my best for him, but for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Coming home from Bernie Bible one time, years ago, we uh, pulled into our carport at his hill, and um, some of you remember we had goats. And some of you remember that one of us in the marriage didn't like having goats. <laughs> and he had to do a lot of things with the goats. We pull into the driveway, and there's one of our baby goats, one of our kids. See, I always have to make sure I'm telling you it's a baby goat before I tell you it's a kid, because a lot of people look at you. There's one of those goats laying in the carport, not moving. I get out of the car, and you know, Lauren and Madeline are real little, and they're just distraught. What's wrong with this goat? Arlene is not... She's not one of the little ones. She's the adult who's freaking out more than the little ones are. What's wrong with my goat? 
And I walk over and I, I pick the goat up and he's barely breathing. It was a really hot, hot day. And we, we thought, oh, what's going on here? Arlene runs, gets water. I try to help the goat a little bit and I get some water into his mouth and he, his breathing slows down even more. His eyes start to slowly close and then they do close and he stops breathing. The girls are crying. Arlene is crying. I'm not crying. <laughs> but I am pretty sad. Because, I mean, this all happened right here in, in my arms. And then I laid him down on the cement. And all of a sudden, the goat jumped up. His eyes opened. He jumped up. He started bouncing around, jumped off the driveway, and started running around the yard. To this day, I don't know what happened. I don't know if it's because we put water in there, if we got him out of the heat. I don't know what it was, but all of a sudden there was a big change. And I'm, the kids are screaming, he's alive! He's alive! And I'm going, yep. Yeah. He's alive! You see, there's activity in life. Death is for the grave. Life is not a passive thing. Life is meant to be active. Life is meant to be moving. Life is meant to be showing. Death is for the grave. There should be a change. There was a change from that goat for some reason from what appeared to be death to what was life. When Jesus says, I am the life, he's not talking about passivity. He's talking about activities, talking about the activity of God and all that he is. Is that true of your life? Is that the description of your life, the way you're facing the things that could be troubling? Can you say that as you enter these things that this is the activity of God? Can others look at you and go, oh my goodness, that is life. We had a student come to us one year, big guy, scary guy, mean guy, intimidating, and he knew it, and he used it. And he, was, he was not fun to be around. He was scary to be around. Students were scared to be around him. Long story short, he came to my office one day. The Lord had been on, working on his heart for weeks. Other staff had been talking with him. And he just came, sat down after one of our classes, and he told me, he says, Kelly, I'm not saved. I need Jesus. And so he prayed there in my office. He entrusted his life to Christ. And I and the staff literally saw a change to this day, and that was years ago. To this day, I run into him every once in a while, and he is not the same person. And I mean, it was like that. He was pleasant to be around. He was an encourager of other people. He, he's, he willingly puts other people in front of him. A change has taken place, something that's attractive, something that is active. If you have placed your faith in Christ, then how are you living? Are you living changed? Are you living active with the very breath of God 
the very life of God. Matthew Henry gives comment to this verse. He said this, Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. That is, He is the beginning, the middle, and the end. In Him, we must set out, go on, and finish. As the truth, He is the guide of our way. As the life, He is the end of it. Something that strikes me in the way Jesus says this, I am the way. And what he's saying is, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And in that he says to me, Kelly, you are not. You are not the way. You are not the truth. And you are not the life. Three years ago, we left, convinced that this is what the Lord would have. Still convinced of that. My dad has Alzheimer's, and it was beginning to get bad. So we believed we needed to go home and help. Things are not going how I expected it to go. And I expected it to be bad. Thursday night, I was laying in bed after having to deal with my dad at 3 o'clock in the morning, and I'm thinking, we can't leave. There's just no way. And our family rallied around us and said, no, you've got to. We'll take care of this. Things are not going the way I expected it to, and I expected it to be hard. Does this mean that things are not going God's way? And I told you the Lord needed to work something in my heart. And this is what He's working. That... I need to go to the Father with this. And the only way I can do that is through Jesus. Because He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. You see, John chapter 17, verse 3 tells us this, that this is eternal life, knowing God and knowing Jesus. Eternal life is not something that starts in heaven someday. But it begins at the moment of conversion. Eternal life, according to Jesus, John 17, 3, is knowing God and knowing Jesus. The word know means to recognize. That is eternal life, to recognize God, to recognize Jesus in those times that can be troubling. See, that's eternal life. It's not just for someday in heaven, but it's also for right now, knowing God knowing Jesus in your trouble. So how are you doing? Are you living the way, the truth, the life at work in the trouble that comes from that? Are you living in the trouble that comes in school 
the trouble of unemployment, the trouble of your marriage, the trouble of your singleness, the trouble of what's going on with your kids. The one who never changes wants you to hear him say today, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father but through me. Are you as narrow-minded as God in Christ? Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your insistence of yourself. And we thank you, Lord, for not only insisting that this life be about you, but then you go and live the very demand through your son, Jesus. And so, Lord, the things that we must face every day, we ask for your wisdom to do so by coming to you through your son, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Father, we thank you for this salvation. We thank you for the privilege of knowing you, knowing your son, no matter what. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening.